So everybody, welcome back once again to the Great Scott Podcast. Today I am joined by uh, comedy talent booker and the runner of the Comedy Caravan, Mr. Tom Sobel. How's it going, Tom? Fine and dandy, Michael. I hope it's a lovely day in Kansas City. Well, we, we're starting our, our winter, I guess. Uh, we had some snow today, so... So, yeah... My wife's a border-certified art therapist, and I put her on a plane to Kansas City this morning for uh, oh, the boy. 50th annual convention of the Art Therapy Association. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, she'll be arriving to some snow. She went properly equipped. Oh, good, good. Well, good. So, uh, so yeah, like, like I was uh, saying uh, to you, Tom, um, what are your thoughts on uh, on the state of comedy today, and what do you think of comedians that you see today? Uh, well, Jerry Seinfeld said it pretty well when he said that uh, this was about 1982 or 83. He said there were 100 great comedians in America. Today, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of comedians, and there's uh, 100 great comedians in America. <laughs> So nothing has, has changed in about 35 years then? Well, the number of exceptional artists has not uh, changed a lot. But then again, uh, the funniest people in America are not necessarily household names you see on TV. I, those, those, if you stick to that, you will never learn about comedies, road warriors, right. people who have acts that are capable of being performed anywhere in front of anybody. Uh, if you are uh, an East Coast comedian, a New York comedian, that works great there. Uh, that's a lot of edginess and a lot of gratuitous profanity. And uh, in uh, California, it's uh, cooler than cool and hippier than hip and the edgiest of the edgy. And the rest of the country isn't necessarily interested in either of those. That's one thing I, I've definitely learned, and uh, I so I had told you a little bit uh, that I was uh, doing comedy myself, and um, you pretty much hit hit the nail on the head there. Uh, and I know that that you've been at this for a long time, but uh, that pretty much pretty much sums it up right there in about one sentence. Yeah, a very long one. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So, um, so there's one one comedian I wanted to ask you about, and uh, that is uh, and he's pretty pretty big right now and doing quite well uh steve harvey i know that you uh you had some uh, uh interactions with him uh quite a while back and and you you kind of helped helped him out well i i met steve when he was just the very beginning of his career and uh, we've worked together for a long time actually he was the mc uh, at my club in Louisville, Kentucky, the night it opened in August of 1987, he was the MC opening night with Stuart Mitchell, uh, better known these days as Haywood Banks as the middle act, and the uh, late George Miller, David Letterman's most frequent guest, as the headliner. Recently, uh, for some reason, Steve has decided to go around digging up an old story of uh, assistance <laughs> that uh, he got from me, which allowed him to get to New York to be seen by the folks that even at the Apollo and the rest is history. Yeah. He was living in, in his car at that time, I think is what I've heard. Well, he, Steve was living on the road. He was working, uh, the, the road and a lot of shows for uh, companies like the comedy zone booking one nighters and weekends throughout the South. And he'd be working on the road three, four, five weeks in a row, but he'd be working, four, five, sometimes six nights a week, and on nights when he wasn't working, well, he had the house himself, and he did whatever he needed to do. Such is the life of, uh, of, of lots of road comics uh, that are trying to make it. The advantage is, here's a guy from Cleveland who made sure that his act worked in Florida, which is really just southern New York, and made sure that his act also worked uh, whether it was in Atlanta or, or Mobile or in uh, Opelika and in the small towns, and he made himself bulletproof. So let me ask you, you said, uh, well, there are uh, thousands of comics these days all over the, the country. 
And um, do you think it's harder for comedians these days to become known? I know like a household name per se, uh, but like but like known. Well, comedians have avenues today that were never available before. And those people who are truly creative and are able to take advantage of uh, what social media offers. I mean, Dane Cook was the first person to really show how a career could be built outside of the normal agent manager side of the industry because he created such a following on social media. And if you're good enough at that today and you can create content, uh, you may not have to go on the road. You may be able to stay home. Uh, Tom Mabe took a career based on uh, recording, sitting around the house, uh, waiting for telemarketers to call him, and then he would fuck around with them and record it. Uh, and he turned that into uh, a comedy career that today uh, has him uh, uh, sensation uh, online. And uh, you know, here's a guy who's making as much as five figures a month of basically mailbox money. Mm. A lot of ways for a comedian to make money today that were not available to them uh, years ago. Now, would you say that's the best way for a comedian to become, to try and become known? Everyone has to pursue, identify their own uh, gifts and find ways to emphasize them. But it is called show business, and this has always been true. Uh, hacks are getting rich while geniuses starve to death because the hacks understand the business side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that definitely. So as I mentioned, so, so, so as I mentioned up at the top, uh, you run something called the Comedy Caravan. Can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, what, what 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 that's about? Well, the Comedy Caravan came into being uh, a dozen years after I started working occasionally with comedians and several years after I began focusing everything on those, uh, the Comedy Caravan brand was created uh, to produce shows in different towns, uh, really college markets, most of them, uh, on weeknights uh, to fill in dates uh, in between full-time clubs. For example, I was booking the Funny Bone in Pittsburgh giggles in columbus and in cincinnati crackers in indianapolis uh, shirley's in louisville and we would book people sometimes for three or four weeks in a row and they'd have sunday monday and tuesday stray dates available and uh, in 1981 uh, i started with a tuesday night in lexington kentucky that went on for 26 years with the same radio station sponsoring every tuesday night uh and uh we had 32 years of Monday nights doing two shows, turning the house over in Bloomington, Indiana, uh, and uh, Tuesday nights for 23 years in West Lafayette. I mean, there were a lot of shows filling these off nights for comics, which meant a guy like Steve Harvey didn't have to sleep in his car because we would have comics working perhaps 12 days in a row, perhaps longer. Mm. And it really was to identify and provide a common promotional uh, vehicle uh, for shows uh, in an era where the name of, the, of who was performing was not really the draw. The draw was the confidence customers had in the comedy caravan logo and that they had seen uh, many shows and they may not remember, you know, uh, in the, in the days of comedians having careers made on the tonight show, uh, people would be talking about the comedian on the tonight show or a letterman, uh, around the water fountain at work the next day. But, They'd remember what he looked like. They'd remember the jokes, but they certainly wouldn't remember his name. <laughs> and then things like the Bob and Tom show and John Boy and Billy came along, which gave comedians uh, name joke recognition, but people didn't know what they looked like. Yeah. So uh, it, 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 
the caravan was there to be able to help comedians do a lot of shows in a very short period of time. And they quickly learned that nothing made their act stronger, quicker. Now you, uh, we, we had been talking a little bit beforehand, um, previously to this, uh, this interview. And, um, you, so you've told me about, uh, a couple of comedians, well, maybe not a couple, but you, you've seen your fair share of comics come come and go. Um, about three thousand at this point. At three thousand, wow, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of comedians, definitely. And so, so basically, is there any uh, anybody that stands stands out in your mind that you kind of wonder why they went into comedy in the first place? Like, were you thinking in the back of your head that like, why is this person even trying this? Well, I mean, if they didn't have something to offer, it was highly unlikely they got work through my office. The competition for dates through my office has always been tremendous. And uh, having had our pick of everyone and anyone who was available, uh, no, you had to have something to get a job. Yeah. I mean, it was no different really than New York or LA, uh, we had to see you in person. We need to have a feel for who you were on stage and off before you got offered anything. And in that setting, we had a good understanding of who we were offering work to and what we could expect from them on stage and off. And if you were huh, a brilliant comedian, but a real pain in the ass off stage, well, that could be a reason why you didn't get more work. Yeah. Uh, and you could be the nicest guy in the world and your act was only okay, but you showed potential and you were eager to learn and to grow. Well, uh, there were times when that endured the comedian's favor to their benefit. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so you told me you, uh, I, I think it was that when you, uh, were talking to me, uh, that, you didn't start out in comedy. You were more on the musical side of things. Oh, I very definitely began. Uh, my, my, my earliest beginnings in, in entertainment occurred when I was a sophomore in high school when four of my classmates formed a jug band that 54 years later is still together and performing. And uh, wow. I, coming up in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where jug band music was Invented and first recorded, uh, invented here well over a century ago. Uh, there's a lot of entertainment that goes with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the people who are familiar with the wonderful uh, singing cowboy group, Riders in the Sky, uh, one of their very first jobs uh, was working with my friends at Dark Knight Jug Band at the Kentucky State Fair in the summer of 1970. Actually, in 1980, I had Riders in the Sky perform for a weekend at a comedy club in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the club owner, who's been out of the comedy business for a long time, uh, he and I remained friends, and he still is in complete and total disbelief that he had Riders in the Sky <laughs> at a comedy club of his for, for a weekend, and I, I don't know. I think maybe they earned five hundred dollars for the weekend to be split between three of them. That's not bad. Well, I, I, in those days when it filled a weekend, uh, they were tickled to death. Yeah. <laughs> so but it's not not exactly. You know, having come from the music business, I was also involved with uh, some avant-garde uh, jazz. And I had um, an agency booking drug band music and avant-garde jazz in colleges. And when the second gas crisis hit in the 70s, the combination of that and uh, the combination of that and disco uh, kind of killed the touring music business. Mm. But by that point, I'd been doing a bunch of college conventions, uh, knacking conventions in those days, NECAA. And I had seen and met people like Jay Leno and Elaine Boozler and Tom Parks, uh, Edmonds and Curley and uh, Gallagher and others uh, who were getting great reaction from the 
the students, and they were getting paid a lot of money, more than the bands were getting paid. Now that is- I realized, I realized finally that, uh, you know, uh, having three comedians in an economy car without a PA or uh, any lighting could draw people uh, one night a week in a college town. Uh, the best bands in the world couldn't draw flies. Mm. And so uh, that's how things kind of evolved uh, to a career in the comedy business. Now, this is something that I've heard comedians say, and I just want your take on this. Do you think that uh, PC is killing comedy these days? No, I think comedians are killing comedy. Comedians are killing comedy. Yeah. Yeah, comedians tolerating people uh, doing material that shouldn't be being done because it's their art. Well, I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, Eddie Murphy may have died for your, or Eddie Murphy and Lenny Bruce may have, and Richard Pryor may have died for your sins. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But you know what? They had something to say. You're just dirty. Yeah. I would agree with you. I would definitely, yeah. Nobody nobody objects to things that are actually funny. But far too much today is being done by people who aren't close to funny. They're just shocked. And they think, and my dog thinks that's correct. <laughs> well, that part of the noise in the background is my 14 year old dog who has bronchitis. Oh, yeah. So, pardon me while I'm feeding her while talking with you. Uh, in any case, uh, yes, uh, there's uh, uh, a, a lot of people who haven't learned the art of being funny. The, what they want to do is go be shocking. And being edgy is fine if you have something to say. Uh, my friend Tim Northern, in the finals of Star Search many years ago, uh, it was he, Deborah D. Giovanni from uh, Canada, and Alonzo Bowden. And one of them was going to earn $100,000 that night. Hopefully, that's to Deborah. But uh, he, Tim walked out on stage and he told what is truly an edgy joke. He said, my name is Tim Northern, and I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. I'm the product of a biracial marriage. My father was African-American, and uh, my mother was black. Found out my grandfather was colored. <laughs> well, you know, that's edgy. That yeah. is truly edgy, but it's, he's not sitting there talking trash about somebody else. He's talking about his own life, his own personal experience. He's telling the truth. He's making you think, and it's funny. It is, yeah. And and the, the people who just want to go on stage and talk trash about other people, I'm sorry, please go learn how to write. I mean, that's, that's the biggest gripe we have today. You know, there are brilliant comedians out there. There's a, a comedian from Atlanta named Stuart Huff. And Stuart is brilliant. And he's been featured in all the major comedy festivals going back to, 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 you know, close to 20 years. And he is a brilliant comedian. But, you know, you don't see him on TV mm-hmm. because you can't enjoy Stuart Huff trying to take uh, three, four, five minutes out of a very carefully developed and built act that is all based on callbacks and prior references. And that doesn't do on TV. But those are artists. Yeah. You know, you got today guys that go out trying to be funny. Well, trying to be funny and being funny by definition are mutually exclusive. If you're trying to be funny, you aren't funny. If you're funny, there's no trying to it. Yeah, yeah. One one thing I see, Tom, and uh, whenever I go to the comedy clubs is uh, younger people try to emulate what they see on, on TV a lot of the time. And um, what a shame they don't know better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just death right there. Yeah. It's just it's just not having the experience to know better. Yeah. But there, 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 there is there, there is a better way. 
you want to see something brilliant? Go online and look up Brett Leak. That's B-R-E-T-T-L-E-A-K-E. Hey, Brett's been around for a very long time. He is, in my opinion, the most inspirational individual I've ever met in my life. Uh, Brett lives in Virginia Beach. He has muscular dystrophy. And his act is not and has never been about his muscular dystrophy. And even though today he's confined to a wheelchair full time and has to sleep in a hospital bed, this fellow hops in his van by himself and drives to go places to perform where he causes people watching him perform. And he has a very sophisticated wheelchair capable of standing him up on the microphone or as Brett says, he feels like he's, uh, 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 Oh, pardon me. I lost the thread. Uh, but in any case, uh, it is capable of standing him up on the microphone and he's capable of making people forget that there's a wheelchair there because the material is just simple and brilliant things like, why don't we give senior citizens discounts? They've had more time to earn the money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or I was a really good student. I got straight A's in college for four years, except my freshman year, I got a C in Latin, which upset me a lot until I looked it up in Roman numerals. <laughs> Swish. <laughs> Apparently the X's on my papers were 10 points extra credit. each. <laughs> okay. Now this is comedy. It's designed to make people smile and laugh. And I've been around long enough to know that there's healthy humor and there's humor that isn't healthy. Uh, I work with uh, Dr. Clifford Kuhn, a long-term tenured professor of psychiatry at the University of Louisville Medical School, who has spent his entire adult life uh, working on a humor and its impact on health, wellness, and stress reduction. And much of the humor that's done today that is so quote-unquote biting is not the healthy form of humor like the jokes I just told you that belong to the brilliant Brett Leake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we need more of that. I mean, let's put it this way. Um, Brian Regan does pretty well without having anything dirty to say, and he never seems to run out of material, does he? No. That's not to say that you can't use language or talk about uh, sex or bodily functions or whatever. But my goodness, that's the spice not the main dish. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. Yeah. So, so basically Tom, uh, before you, uh, did, uh, the comedy care of, well, how, let me ask you this. Did you used to do stand up yourself? No, I am not a comedian. I'm not, uh, I don't have stage fright and it is not uncommon for me to walk on stage to uh, settle an audience down and introduce uh, the first person, but that's done primarily to make sure if there's any issue with sound or lights, the knobs can get twisted while I'm there and not when a comedian's on stage trying to entertain people. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at my club in Louisville or other shows, if I'm there, I'm also not incapable of walking on stage at the end of the night and thanking everybody for being there. Okay, so you're kind of like a a host per se, then just uh... you know I could do 45 minutes in the North America if 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 we had a problem, I could rip off enough quality comedians and do 45 minutes of the best of North America. I can steal from the best, but no, I'm not a comedian. I never aspire to be a comedian. My gift is that uh, I'm an artist advocate. My job is to help people get better at what they do and understand more about how things work. And there's very little understanding within comedians, even people in New York and L.A. There's very little understanding of how things actually work. Absolutely. People people that want to learn about how comedy works should contact and, and check out Dave Schwenson. Dave Schwenson, uh, yeah, okay. Dave Schwenson, uh, a couple of decades ago, was the booker at the Improv uh, in L.A. He's lived in Cleveland for many years and is an acknowledged author and and does workshops and everything else on the business of comedy. And he's he's quite gifted and, and 
uh, knows what he's talking about. I do want to go back to something or someone you were talking about earlier, and that's uh, Jay, uh, Jay Leno. And um, I heard him say one time that, uh, and he also was a homeless man himself um, starting out. And uh, I, I heard him say one time, he used to stand in line for five hours a day trying to get up on stage to, to do his act. Well, Jay, is, it's a well-known story of, Jay working for the Rolls Royce dealership uh, in Boston, and he would drive one of the cars, uh, you know, three, four, five nights a week from Boston to New York to hang out at the Improv, hoping that he'd get on stage. And he'd been doing that for five weeks without ever getting on stage, and and he already had an act. I mean, he was already working in Boston, and one night. Uh, uh, Oh, uh, at one point uh, at the improv, Bud Friedman said to him, I've uh, been seeing you a lot. Uh, where do you live? And when Jay said Boston, he goes, Boston? Well, I mean, where do you live in New York? And Jay said, I don't know. I live in Boston. I drive down here every night. He goes, you've been driving down here every night that I've seen you. You've been driving from Boston to, to New York to try to get on stage. You'll be on stage tonight. <laughs> And then, the- but again, again, again. Remember that different eras. When, 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 when I really got ramped up uh, at the dawn of the '80s, uh, uh, there was always more work than there were good comedians, and so the really good ones got a lot of play. And the comedy explosion occurred, and people who operated fern bars got into the comedy business. Uh, or they operated strip joints, or they operated cigar bars, or whatever, and comedy was the flavor of the month. But they didn't know anything about the art, and as a result, a lot of people went to see a lot of terrible shows. Mm-hmm. And then the chains like the Improv and the Funny Bones started finding that, oh, we should be booking celebrities. And the comedy industry was at its best when a ticket to a comedy club cost roughly what a ticket to a movie cost. And a beer or a mixed drink in a comedy club cost approximately what a big Coca-Cola cost in a movie theater. And an appetizer in a comedy club cost approximately what a giant box of popcorn cost in the movie theater. And the expenses were comparable. And as a result, people would go two, three, sometimes even four times a month. Well, once the people started booking celebrity, and unfortunately, celebrity often is not funny. First off, uh, they're using comedy to pay their rent. It's not their art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and B, they don't spend enough time on stage to have a really good, really tight act. Uh, and so uh, many a club has experienced a quote-unquote celebrity comedian or a major headliner Uh, coming to town and having a bad first show because he hasn't done this much time in since last time he had a gig on the road, which might've been months. So it's just a a different art. Uh, The business was best when the club owners were entrusted and expected to know who the funniest people are long before the general public had a clue. Once you got an idea of who this person is and what their name is, gee, go see him in concert at at the theater. So I've heard Jerry Jerry Seinfeld say it usually takes about ten, 10 years for a comedian to find his voice. Does that does that sound about right to you? Well, I, I wouldn't place any limits on anything. Uh, there was a comedian uh, from Cleveland named Phil Van T, who, when he started in 1983, he had his character perfect from day one. Uh, in those days, Phil was six foot six and about 165 pounds, and he wore a cheap black undertaker's suit with uh, pants that the cuffs were too short and three inches of white socks showing, and <laughs> two inches of, of cuffs showing on his shirt and a narrow black string tie, and he looked like a cross between Ichabod Crane and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and he had this dark and edgy act that was cute and charming. It, it wasn't. It wasn't nasty or evil. I mean, he, he he used to walk on stage and go, "My name's Phil Van T, and I'm a sick bastard." <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I cried last week. My brother died. He was hit by a car. Almost broke my windshield. <laughs> you know, and he could have written for this character for forever and a day. It was perfect from day one. And unfortunately, he moved from Cleveland to San Francisco, where he got involved with a manager who was uh, apparently doing so much blow at that time that he and everybody else in the Bay Area told him, oh, that's great, but it's got to be darker. Make it edgier, darker, edgier. Mm. They got to the point where Phil hated the act. And he moved to San Francisco, moved from San Francisco to L.A., where he still lives today, performing as a magician known as El Ropo. Uh, but uh, he got rid of the, the, the Undertaker suit and created a character that had a, a sailor's cap, wore a vest, and played a one-string banjo he made out of a yardstick, a metal t- cookie tin, and a piece of wire. Wow. It's unfortunate to have had a great act ruined by somebody who didn't know what they were doing, pushing them to change it. Yeah, absolutely. Bill Vanti is someone that, that, that every comedian of his era who saw Phil Vanti would agree that he was truly brilliant. It definitely does sound like it from, from the jokes you just told me. Yeah, you pick up He'd pick up the string tie he was wearing. He'd go, well, my brother was a skinny one in our family. When he died, he left me this. <laughs> his old sleeping bag. <laughs> but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't threatening. Yeah. It was charming. But it was certainly dark and edgy. Yeah, absolutely. So who are some of your uh, favorite comedians to watch today? Oh, well, you know, that is a uh, challenging question. Uh, uh, certainly, I have great admiration for the comedian who finished third this year in America's Got Talent, Ryan Miller from Ryan Indiana. And uh, Ryan, like so many others, pretty much got his first road work working through my office. In fact, after he made the semifinals and before the finals were shot uh, on America's Got Talent, uh, he worked for me in Louisville for a community association and he performed as the headliner for the first show of the University of Kentucky's 17th year of weekly comedy caravan shows. Mm. And he's going to have a brilliant career. I mean, just a really good career in comedy. Well, the biggest question will be is, can he cause people to forget that he has a disability? Can he get beyond the one trick pony? And he's a wonderful, wonderful man. He has a great theatrical background. He's wonderful at improv. He really understands acting. He has every opportunity in the world. Now, he's very different from my friend Greg Morton, who made the semifinals in America's Got Talent. Because Greg, who has known, both being from Toronto, has known Howie Mandel for 30 years or more, Greg has been a longtime staple of the road comedy industry, a guy who gets no respect in New York or L.A., but you go to comedy clubs, whether it's uh, Hilarities in Cleveland or the Stardome in Birmingham or Comedy Off-Broadway in Lexington or wherever, or or at at, uh, comedy clubs in, in Las Vegas. And this guy is a major player for a long time and is really one of the funniest people uh, working today. Uh, Haywood Banks remains incredibly inventive and clever, as does, unbelievably, Emo Phillips has been able to find Emo, a way yeah. to, to grow uh, and age with a character. And I, I remember when Emo lived for a couple of weeks with my, my, my wife and me in the days when he carried his, his uh, stage costume around in a paper bag. Mm. Those are the days where he said uh, he had... Uh, he had a joke in those. He said, "I, I, uh, I really didn't know uh, how to dress for a comedy show in uh, Kentucky." So I asked my mother, and she said, "Emo," because that's my name. She said, "Emo, why don't you wear your grandfather's yellow tuxedo?" And I said, "Well, now that's a good idea." So I went out and got a shovel and dug him up. <laughs> he sure has let himself go. Yeah. 
I mean, again, uh, for Emo to be able to age with the character is truly remarkable. And again, there are brilliant comedians, guys like Ronnie Bullard working the cruise ships, uh, or, 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 you know, a, a last night at the University of Kentucky, a comedian who started with me before he became a comedian. Uh, it started with me in the in the mid seventies as a mime. But uh, Marty Polio headlined the show at the University of Kentucky last night. And Marty has headlined comedy shows on four continents, and he's one of fewer than 60 comedians in history to have performed on The Tonight Show on New Year's Eve. Mm. Uh, and and it's is brilliant, uh, because he's not just a stand-up comedian, he's also a world-class juggler, and his Mr. Magic is considered the best spoof on magic in the business by people like Matt King, um, Lance Burton, yeah, uh, who started their careers about the same time Marty did in the same city here in Louisville, Kentucky. Oh. So, so Tom, I'm sure you probably get asked this question a lot, but what, <clears throat> but what does it take for a for you to be a successful comedian, someone who gets work and to be seen and just keep getting books? Can you accept rejection? <laughs> that seems to be a big one. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's, if you can't take rejection, you're never going to be able to make it because there are going to be people who reject you for the reasons and there are going to be people who reject you for the wrong reasons. No, there are going to be people who reject you because they should and there are people who are going to reject you because they don't know any better and there are going to be people who reject you because it's their ego and they can't. Yeah. yeah. See, my dog agreed. And he knows, he knows all. Uh, but this is, this is all, you know, if you have perseverance and you dedicate yourself, I mean, the, 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 the first thing I would say to anybody trying to get into this is learn to write. Learn to write by learning to turn the faucet on. Produce copious quantities of material without trying to write perfect material or great material. Learn to write a lot. If you learn to write a lot, you'll find that over time, there's enough quality material in the quantities you've written to help you move on to the next step from where you are. And as you develop that voice, uh, takes it develop. As you develop that voice, the percentage of usable material begins to go up. In the meantime, you've got quite a lot of material that's really funny but doesn't fit you as a character. And if you've written material that's really funny but it doesn't fit your character, identify a friend of yours whose character it fits and give them the material. You gain the experience and the workout by writing the line. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, give it away. Uh, it's of no use if you can't use it give it to somebody who can yeah uh, and learn to write and learn to write clean and be funny clean once you've learned to be funny being clean you can always spice it up that's the easiest thing in the world to do however today people never bother to learn how to write clean and clever in the first place and that is a real problem and issue within the industry uh, if you're going to have something to say, it has to be unique. And if everybody's taking this same edgy attitude, nothing stands out. It all begins to sound the same. Yeah, it's it gets kind of old watching the same thing over and over just by different people. Yes. There are so many open mics. And comedians going to open mics where comedians. And then they'd be working to the back of the room to entertain one another. And they develop terrible habits and they learn nothing. I mean, you may write the same joke eight times over two years before you learn how to get into it or where to go and get out of it. You may have jokes that you've written that are great jokes that you never can find a way to get into your act. Doesn't mean they weren't wonderful jokes. They just didn't have a place to fit into your act uh, in telling a story. You know, that's the difference between somebody doing three or five minutes on TV and somebody who's capable of doing an hour or more 
but who's telling a story. And, and the story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's not just jokes thrown together. It's a, it's a, it's a set. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, so that is uh, the most common uh, advice that, that you would give to someone who wants to get into the business. Learn to write. Learn, learn to, to turn. The, learn, learn to turn the faucet on. Uh, the you know, Rob could walk into a room and do two hours on his surroundings off the top of his head because he developed the ability to look at the world not through rose-colored glasses, but through a comedy-colored lens. And when you develop your own peculiar way to be able to view the world through your unique angle, your unique comedic lens. Well, then you're, then you can be a comedian. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a comedy class right now and, um, I'm learning just how, how tough comedy really, really is to, to craft, to perfect, to write. I mean, you're really playing with words, and uh, I know that Rodney Dangerfield would always take words in and words out of his of his jokes. Absolutely, there was a there's a comedian, Amos Chang, who going back 30 years ago, uh, he did a lot of material about smoking, and, and he loved smoking. He smoked in the shower. He had this thing called smoke on a rope. Okay. Yeah. And, and he had. A, it was uh, uh, only that smokers know the joys of waking up in the morning and coughing up something that looks like a chicken embryo. <laughs> and I had, I had lunch with him uh, uh, Tuesday, two days ago. I'm on Monday, I'm sorry, two days ago. And uh, when we had lunch, that I chided him for decades that that joke needed one word added to it, which would impact it. Again, the joke was only us smokers know the joys of waking up in the morning and coughing up something that looks like a chicken embryo. And I said, if I had one word, you can get a bigger laugh out of that. So the joke would be only us smokers know the joys of waking up in the morning and coughing up something that looks vaguely an <laughs> embryo. That's the a, double take, the suspense, the suspense, and the victory just gives a much bigger punch to the punchline. And comedy is the art of being able to learn how to do those. By the way, I myself have only written one book in my life, but this is share with you. Uh, living in Louisville, Kentucky, it's a town to tell a part you run into the Catholics coming out of the front door of the bars. <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. That's good. For an amateur? Yeah. For an amateur, that's a good joke for an amateur. Yeah. And I am an amateur, I, and, and, and I do not have any expectations of ever being anything <laughs> else. Uh, you know, that, that is, although, if need be, on, on, for many years on December 20th, on, uh, I'm sorry, November 21st, uh, for many, many years, I would go on stage at my club in Louisville and uh, do a guest set in honor of the anniversary of the passing of the legendary Ollie Joe Prater, the renegade white man who Richard Pryor called the most outrageous white man in America. And uh, Ollie was widely known as one of the great thieves, he and Robin Williams. And uh, the trick is, is Ollie could get a bigger laugh out of it than the guy who wrote it. And uh, I, I, for many years, would go on stage on the anniversary of his passing, and uh, oh, do my little, my little tribute to him by doing some of his material and reminding people of this, this man who first came to notoriety by being the winner of the 1979 Showtime Houston Laugh Off. Well, the fellow who finished second was a friend of his from the Comedy Store, originally from Lexington, Kentucky, uh, who went on to bigger and. Uh, uh, better fame, a fellow named Jim Varney, uh, better known for his role in the Ernest movies. Absolutely. Jim Varney, absolutely. The Ernest movies, yep. And those were great. Those were just great movies, and uh, I was that Jim was still around now, now that you mentioned it. But anyways. I, I, actually, actually, I had uh, Ollie uh, performing in Lexington on one of our Tuesday night shows when Jim was still living in Nashville. 
And being originally from Lexington, Jim got in the car and drove from Nashville to uh, and uh, we had him do a guest set on the show with Ollie that night. And after the show was over, uh, Ollie consumed uh, roughly a liter and a half of Crown Royal. And uh, Jim matched him ounce for ounce drinking Jack Daniels. And before they went to bed, uh, they consumed most of what was, I guess, the better part of a, an ounce of blow. No wonder they're both dead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One one uh, interviewer was asking another comedian, why do you think comedians give up so early? And I think that's that's the reason, because they they don't really believe in themselves. I I think it's it's kind of what the comedian said. Well, comedians have a great misunderstanding on how things work. And uh, if you're going to be guided by people who don't know more about it than you do, it's easy to get discouraged. Yeah. I mean, the trick is uh, people make it in comedy because they work with somebody who's farther along in the business than they are. And that person takes a liking to what they do and a liking to them. And that person introduces them to another club owner or another booker that they work with. And the trick is, in entertainment, you're going to get paid one of two ways. You're going to get paid less than you're worth, or you're going to get paid more than you're worth. And unfortunately, most people think the idea is, okay, well, then I want to get paid more than I'm worth as soon as possible, but in reality, no, that's not the deal. You want to be paid more than you're worth for the longest possible amount of time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, But this is just such as the delusions of, of, of misunderstanding of how things work. So the trick is, once you're working, it's better to be the most in-demand MC working every week and meeting lots of people than it is to be a good middle act who one or two weeks uh, a month. Uh, it's better to be the best middle act in demand working all the time than it is to be one of a thousand skilled headliners uh, who are looking for work. Yeah. It's better yeah. to be the best act on whatever level you're on. There's and, one. Uh, everybody's in a big hurry to move. And you know what? If you've got what it takes, those of us in the industry who serve as the gatekeepers, we'll see it. We'll yeah. get it. We'll recognize it. But just because you think you've got it doesn't mean you. Yeah, unfortunately, I've seen, yeah, going to these comedy clubs, and uh, yeah, it's just kind of sad sad to watch. It really is. Well, and anybody can have a bad set. Yeah. Having a, having a bad set does not mean you're a bad comedian. It means you had a bad set. Yeah. And there could be a lot of reasons behind having bad sets. Just don't blame the audience. It's not their fault. They came in expecting to have a good time. That's yeah. That's one thing also that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, if a joke works one night and then it doesn't the next, would, would that? I guess that would not be the audience's fault. That would be the comedian's fault. Well, sometimes a comedian will force feed a joke. An audience is not the audience for the joke. I mean, if you want to be a middle act, okay, you better have an hour's worth of material. I mean, the fact that you're only going to do twenty-five to thirty-five minutes. You need to be able to pick and choose what you're going to do based on the audience you see in front of you. And if you're in the middle act, based on the reactions that you get from watching the MC open the show, watching the guest set, if there's going to be one. These are all clues uh, to direct you to what material to do for this audience. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not. It, 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 the stage is not a place for a comedian to go jerk himself off. No, you're right. The stage is a place to go, and the goal is to entertain the audience in a manner that they want to come back and be entertained by someone else and will come back and see you the next time that you are around. But uh, like I say, there's very little understanding of how things work. Everybody's egos are involved. 
in manners that lead them to invalid conclusions. So you said something, Tom, that uh, I thought was was good um, last time that we had spoken before doing this. Um, and uh, you said that Jerry Seinfeld does not get paid to tell jokes. He gets paid. No, to no, tell- no, no, no comedian is ever paid to tell jokes. Nobody. Never. Okay. You're paid to create material and to spend enough time on stage to be able to put it into a usable uh, condition. You're paid to hustle work. Yeah. You're paid to travel and drive a car or take a flight, deal with the airports and sleep in a strange bed and eat road food and be away from your wife and your family and yeah. except for the yeah. and, and sitting around all day when you're not doing a promotion waiting for a few minutes at night on stage, which is the reward for doing the other stuff. And when you reach the point of being Brian Regan or Jerry Seinfeld or someone, you're paid to sell tickets. Yeah. You perform stand-up comedy because you have a driving passion that you have to pursue. And the first definition of success in the world of entertainment is survival in pursuit of your passion. So there's a lot of comedians who've been around telling jokes for 10, 15, 20, 30 years who haven't had a day job. This is what they do. And no, they're not household names. And no, they haven't made so much money that they're filthy rich. But they have survived in pursuit of their passion to be a comedian. And those people are undeniably a success. Absolutely. Anybody who can do that for that long is a success. Absolutely. Yep. You got it. <laughs> that, you got it. There's, I mean, it, it's just a horrible life starting out as a comedian going, I mean, to these... It doesn't have to be. Yeah. God, I, I can only tell you that there are a thousand comedians that will tell you that their time on the road for the comedy caravan provided the best memories of their lifetime. And, and and definitely, you see that on the Comedy Caravan website. I mean, you see high high praise from some of the biggest comedians uh, today. Well, they understood that at that point in their career, it provided them with a lot of stage time in real clubs uh, to be able to learn their craft. Yeah. And they had to learn the craft. Okay? Because, again, <laughs> you take New York comic telling subway jokes and send them to Memphis, Tennessee, and then they draw blank stares. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's uh, Tim Wilson, brilliant comedian. Uh, you know, in Cleveland, Ohio? No. Tim, Tim does not belong in Birmingham. He does not belong in Cleveland. It is not the right audience for yeah. him. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, that's terrible. And was really one of the brilliant, brilliant comedians. Uh, uh, I'm proud that uh, in his catalog on Capitol Records, the same as the Beatles, uh, Beatles, as Tim would say, that all of those live recordings, all of that live stuff, was basically recorded in my club and it's, it's, so it sounds like there's something special that uh, about what you do in in the comedy caravan that uh, that. That you're, that you're talking about. Been blessed to have a fabulous staff. Been blessed to be surrounded by a whole bunch of people who work together for 5, 10, 15. Oh, even some of the club staff worked with me for as much as 20 years. And we're comedy people. I mean, as my stage manager, Brett Soul started with me in 1982. The first show Brett worked with me on was... Uh, in 1982, had Emo Phillips in the middle and and uh, Jay Leno headline. Oh, yeah. As it turns out, uh, three of the jokes in Jay's final monologue is to the Tonight Show were written by my stage man. Oh, wow. Yeah, one of these days, Brett and I may decide to do a podcast. We're not comedians, but we know a lot of comedians, and a lot of comedians know us. Definitely. I would definitely listen to that. I mean, I'm sure that – well, I, I do listen to a lot of Joe Rogan as well, and he, he offers some insights on comedy as well. Well, there's lots of people out there that have seen 
from a lot of different perspectives. And all I could do is give it to you as a fella in the Midwest who spent enough time on the coasts uh, to have had a chance to see most of it from its earliest beginnings. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one one final question for you, Tom. And uh, again, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I appreciate all the insight and, and advice that you've given to us. Um, are there any uh, resources that you would uh, recommend to someone who wants to get into the business, like a book or a website or anything like that? It is very difficult to teach comedy because is, you're talking left brain versus right brain. Yeah. And you can go learn and become a technician, okay? Yeah. But you're never going to be Larry Miller, who, in addition to being the best technician that ever lived, is a brilliant writer. So uh, there is uh, uh, the, 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 the biggest thing is to find audiences but find audiences of people you don't know and don't know you. Those are the only people you're going to get an honest reaction from. And as Steve Harvey would tell you, do not pass up on stage time unless it's the wrong stage time. And going to open mic after open mic with the same open micers and nobody else in the audience not likely to be a place you're going to learn much. Yeah, You might learn something going to the diner after the show and sitting around a table with them. But in the club and on the stage, no, it's just a place to, a way to develop really bad habits. And then to come up with this opinion that much more than what you are. And I've also learned, Tom, the hard way, don't do your act on family and friends because that's, that's just brutal. That's not going to tell you much. No, the only way that you will know anything is if you're, I mean, one of the great things about doing one-nighters and weekends is the people have no clue where you were. And when I say the people, it's not just the audience, the staff has no idea where you were last night and they don't know whether you killed or died. And killing your audience and dying on stage is a very fine line between the two. Absolutely. But night after night after night, if you're doing sets, I mean, that's one of the good things about New York. And, and, and the subway series is that you can do a lot of sets. However, if you're not doing long enough sets, yeah, you're being able to work on material, but you're not being able to work on putting the set together because it's not how the joke goes. It's how the set goes and doing all those short sets. You don't develop the technical things like the callbacks where one piece of material is based on something that was said earlier in the night. And again, people that are interested in the art of the callback, I would refer them uh, on YouTube to, to uh, uh, Stuart Huff, Ronnie Bullard, and the late, great Wild Bill Bauer. Uh, I mean, these are three people who their ability to structure and act and to find ways to get back to the same thing three or four times. My friend, the, the late Bill Sacra was, was, was one of those guys. Uh, Bill, late in his career, uh, created a character uh, named Sal Manella. And Sal was the, worst, was the worst hack Vegas MC kind of guy you ever saw in your life with an attitude of, everybody loves Sal. And... Uh, uh, it was it was it was a tremendous character that 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 that, that Bill did, and uh, there are ways to be creative. I mean, he had aside from impressions of six hundred people, you know, he could create characters in the same manner that. Uh, 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 oh, I'm sorry. Um, Jonathan Winters, I'm sorry, spacing out there for a moment. Uh, Jonathan Winters, of course, Jonathan Winters began as an impressionist and was a, a radio personality in, in Dayton and in Cincinnati, and he got his first TV appearance doing his impressions. After he was done, the producer told him that, that the impressions had gone really well and he had been a real hit. The only problem was 
all the people he did impressions of were already famous. Oh. <laughs> and that is what caused Jonathan Winters to never do another voice, another character that was not purely out of his own imagination. It was to ensure that he owned his act. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That would, that, and the rest is pretty much uh, history, as they would say. Uh, and that's the way it is. And that's the way it is. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time, sir. Michael, my pleasure. Uh, of course, this is strictly one man's opinion. It does not mean I'm right. No, but uh, like you, but you have been in the business a long time. You've helped out a good number of comedians to get to where they wanted to, or or at least a picture of it. And so I think that there's weight behind exactly what what you're saying. All the advice. Well, let's put it this way. I do not believe there are many other people in the comedy industry who've had the same phone number for 45 years, yeah. which merely means I don't have to duck anybody. And that's a good way to sleep well at night. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Tom, thank you again so much. Please do come back sometime. Michael, no problem in the meantime. Talk to David Nastry. David Nastry, yes, sir. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Best, best of luck with your future. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, bye-bye.